Animal Society of Lincoln Center. You're listening to The Close-Up. This week, we've got a special Q&A with Barry Jenkins, whose film Moonlight won the Golden Globe for Best Drama Motion Picture this past weekend. After that, we'll go to a Q&A with director Eugene Green from the 54th New York Film Festival. His film, Son of Joseph, premiered during the festival and is opening here at the Film Society this weekend. For our recent series, Illuminating Moonlight, we invited director Barry Jenkins to curate a selection of films that have inspired him. He picked work by Wang Kar Wai, Charles Burnett, Hu Shen, Claire Denis, and more. We also screened Jenkins' underappreciated debut, Medicine for Melancholy, and two of his short films. After a screening of Moonlight during the series, Jenkins joined the Film Society's editorial director, Michael Koreski, for a Q&A. Let's go to that now. Uh, we, we, we weren't ready to go because I went to the bathroom and I washed my hands and my hands are all ashy, so I had to find some lotion. <laughs> so I was like, I gotta go somewhere. I had to find some lotion. But otherwise, I'm good. <laughs> and I'm not ashy anymore, so here we go. <laughs> the non-ashy Barry Jenkins. The non-ashy Barry uh, Jenkins, yes. Nobody, nobody will accuse you. Um, well, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you very much for making this beautiful film that I truly believe has been one of the few bright spots in a very difficult year, in a very difficult season. And a lot of people that I talked to um, said this. People from of all different stripes say that, at least I saw Moonlight. So thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome, bro. <laughs> um, I, guess, I guess the first question I had is about uh, location, because I think what's happening with a lot of American films is there's a lack of specificity because a lot of American films are being made for a more global market. So you see films that don't really have, a, they have like a loss of language, a loss of environment. Um, and your film is so much about the place it's set in, which is a place that you're from. So I'd love to talk about, uh, I'd love for you to talk about the impetus for that and wanting to make a film about where you're from. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean the, 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 the root of that, I guess, rests with uh, Terrell McCraney. You know, I have to give Terrell credit for going to that place uh, of writing, you know, the source material in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue, uh, which was all about Miami. Um, I do think that the struggles that Sharon goes through are struggles that young men and communities all over the country, and based on when I've been outside the country with this film all over the world, um, go through. But Terrell and I are from uh, Miami. You know, you thanked A24 before bringing me up here, and I have to also thank A24 and Plan B because you know, it's a very difficult time right now um, in the world, and as a filmmaker, uh, it's a very difficult time, I'm speaking now just of, of logistics, uh, to make anything that's as specific uh, as you mentioned. And so there, there are no tax incentives in the state of Florida uh, right now. There weren't any in the, in the calendar year of 2015. So we could have gone to Louisiana, we could have gone to Georgia uh, to make this film, and there are communities like Miami in those states. Uh, but we kind of stood up. Uh, we stood up on it and said, this movie has to take place in Miami, the light is a certain way, the ocean is a certain way, you could smell it in the hood a certain way. Um, and A24 and Plan B did not balk, uh, despite the fact that the budget could have gone 30% farther had we relocated to some of those different communities. Uh, but that specificity you talk about, I think it ends up on the screen intrinsically uh, because we kept it rooted uh, in the place that it was, uh, it, it was born of, uh, which again, I have to give credit to Terrell McCraney for doing that. Right, and, and branching off that, could you talk about uh, how you first came to collaborate with him, because this is based on an unproduced play, correct? 
Yeah, yeah. So Terrell was uh, an undergrad at DePaul University. Uh, he graduated around 2003. Uh, his mom had just passed away uh, of age-related illnesses, and he was applying to the Yale School of Drama, and he had to write a work sample. Being Terrell McCraney, who's now a MacArthur genius, he wasn't at that time, uh, but he had a work ethic, so he wrote three uh, uh, work samples. Uh, this play, and Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue, uh, was one of those. Uh, the other piece he wrote, uh, the Brother Size trilogy, went on to be performed all over the world and kind of put him on. Uh, and this thing kind of just sat there. And it wasn't until 10 years later when a mutual friend uh, who knew these things about myself and Terrell, uh, there's this article in the New York Times that's out right now that pretty much says everything you would ever want to know about how me and Terrell grew up. And in that article, uh, you'll, you'll learn that Terrell and I went to some of the same elementary schools, same middle school, um, and both our moms struggled with this addiction to crack cocaine that you see depicted in the film by Naomi Harris. And uh, nobody knew that about me, but Terrell had spoken about it uh, quite a bit until so these mutual friends read his, his piece and said, hey, this isn't about you, Barry, uh, but it's about you. Uh, and when I read it, I saw exactly what they meant. And that was kind of how the whole thing came together. You know, two guys who probably passed each other in the hallway multiple times over the first 15 years of their life only met, you know, in their early 30s uh, when this connection was formed around these mutual friends knowing we both went through this thing with our mothers. And I read that it took you uh, only 10 days to write this script. Is that true? I mean, to write the first draft, yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, that not, counts. Not to, not to write the film you guys just saw. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I was, at a, I was at a, not a dark place, but, you know, I was at a very... Uh, decelerated place, I would say, in my career at that point. Uh, Medicine for Melancholy is going to screen, I believe, in the same room uh, at 9.30. I'd made that film in 2008 for $15,000 with five friends in 15 days, and it kind of got me put on, and then I didn't put anything else on uh, after I got put on. And so it was like six years later, and uh, a mutu uh, again, another friend of mine, Adela Romanski, who was the first producer on the project, and she said, hey, you have to make a film. And I said, yeah, you know, I want to write something. And Terrell's piece is one of those things. And I thought, if I can just go somewhere where I have no distractions, I think I could get this writing done. Uh, and so I asked friends what, uh, I wanted to go to Europe. And I asked friends what the most boring place in Europe was. And I apologize to any Belgians in the audience. Uh, <laughs> because uh, Brussels, Belgium was the place uh, that came back. And so I went to Brussels. And yeah, 10 days later, because there was nothing to do. I mean, nothing. <laughs> Uh, ten days later, I had the first draft of the script. And, and I'll say this, if you go on YouTube and, and look up, I don't, I don't know how you would find it, but there's an interview with me as I'm sitting in the apartment uh, writing the script, and the guy actually says to me, you know, it's kind of, he kind of checked me. He's like, yeah, man, why has it been so long since you made a movie? And I was like, this is three years ago. I'm sitting in this flat in Brussels. I go, well, I'm writing something now, and I think this is going to be the next piece. Uh, and here we are. Um, there's also a New York Times video, the, the 20, face, 20 people under 40, in world cinema, and that video was also, uh, it's me with a, a digital camera just recording what's around me as I'm writing uh, this film. And it looks a bit lonely, because uh, I've watched it recently because I remember these things happen, and yet I can see the loneliness outside is channeled into whatever mania ends up uh, in the last 110 minutes you guys just experienced. It seems like it's, it's an, an amazing fortuitous thing that you ended up um, uh, adapting something that's so close to your own experience. I mean, was when you were actually writing the screenplay, was it sort of like an uncanny experience? Like someone was already inside no, your head? No, you know, I kind of tricked myself. So I, I Adela, the, pro the producer, and I have been talking about this quite a bit. You know, 
again, when I made this list of things I wanted to make, the, the one thing we decided was we want to make something with our friends that we care about that's personal. And so I had this, this idea of a film about my personal biography growing up with my mom. And I thought, oh, that's too personal. I can't do that. And then I was like, oh, Terrell told his life. I'll do that. That's not as personal. And then, of course, as I started working on it, I was like, oh, shit, this got way personal. <laughs> Um, and so it was kind of one of those things where it, it wasn't that it was serendipity. I think I, I forced myself into a place of ignorance uh, where I was certain that I was, as a craftsperson filmmaker, I was investigating these characters when I was really uh, through the process investigating uh, myself. That's interesting. Um, so speaking of the character, um, I'm really struck, I've seen this movie a few times, I'm, I'm really struck by um, these parallel uh, scenes. Uh, so in the first section, you have the, a scene in a restaurant where um, Juan, the drug dealer who's the father figure, is basically trying to break through the barrier to talk to this child, little, who won't talk back. And then the climax of the film is also set in a restaurant where um, Chiron, now called Black, um, someone is sitting across from him trying to break through. And, the, and in the first section, he actually, uh, Juan says, he's basically trying to figure out who, who are you? Who are you? Like literally, what's your name? Who are you? How do I find a home for you? But at the end, um, Andre Holland's character, See, Kevin, this is how you know you're at Lincoln Center. <laughs> With the people who publish Film Comet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've so, seen the film too many times, perhaps. So, so um, the, the, the source material was uh, circular in nature. And so you would see Little wake up, you see Chiron wake up, you see Black wake up. You'd see Little go to school, Chiron go to school, you see Black go to the corner. It was basically just 24 hours, and you would see the character at each different stage in life go through the same event. So when I decided to pull it apart, uh, based on this film three times, which is showing in the series this week, I still wanted to retain the repetition uh, of these certain acts, because in each story, you're right, someone does cook uh, for Chiron, uh, he accepts that gesture. I think there's this intimacy involved when someone prepares a meal for you, when someone feeds you, when someone actually like sustains you. It's an act of nurturing, uh, but he receives it a different way in each different chapter of the film. So it was kind of like uh, an attempt to retain uh, what I responded to in the source material, uh, but then also you know, revealing the information in a way that sort of tracked with the character's journey because these things happen to us over and over again. We kiss people and they mean different things depending on where we are you know, in our maturation as, as human beings and our stage of life. You know, People feed us and we receive it a different way. You know, it's like, oh, you're supposed to feed me. And then other people, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe you fed me. And I think those things are happening as the character is developing and accepting, again, who he truly is. And that each one, each time means something so different. I mean, there's such a... a I mean, bruh, the, when, when, when one gives him that meal in the diner in the first part, and when Kevin makes that meal in the third part, way different things. Very different things. It's a whole different <laughs> level of expression. But I love how the food itself can be a seduction, right? In the third chapter, yes. In the third chapter. <laughs> I'm talking about the third chapter, yes. <laughs> um, so, and, and to talk about the, the casting of, of Sharon, obviously this is, it's, a, it's, it's delicate, uh, a thing to do to cast three very different actors to play the same character. What were what was the the one shared characteristic that you were looking for between these three actors? Uh, you know, the biggest thing was, and I didn't say this to to the actors uh, in the audition process, but I did say it to Jesse Ramirez, our casting director. Um, you know, it's no secret that Claire Denis is my favorite filmmaker. You know, we're showing Beau Travail with a fantastic short screening before it. So if you've seen that film and you don't think you have the time to watch it again, they're showing a 35 millimeter print in the short film you can't see anywhere else. It's amazing. That's a sidebar. But anyway, 
Claire Denis is my favorite filmmaker, and so uh, I've always been watching a lot of French cinema. And you know, when you watch French cinema, you see these actresses, these French actresses, often as a French male actor who's just like gesticulating, doing all this shit, and the woman is standing there watching, observing, and she's emoting, you know. And and the scene is not hinged on this guy doing all these big expressions. It's on this woman who was processing, you know, who's relating, who's reflecting. And so I was trying to find that same quality in these young black men. Because I feel like the way I grew up, not as a filmmaker, but as a person, uh, you see these young black men, at least I did in the community I grew up in, who were going through massive change without expressing how that change felt or what it meant. But if you looked at them and took the time to look at them, you could see that change taking place beneath the surface. And so that was the one quality that we were looking for, probably influenced by where I grew up, but also the cinema that I've ingested uh, over so many years. And, and I said to Yessi, you know, we have to write scenes that aren't in the film to cast these guys, because we have to know if I give them dialogue, they can do it. But what I'm really looking for is, when you were reading lines of the other character, how are they behaving? How are they responding? And that was the one, I guess, character trait that we were looking for in the actors, and we found it in Ashton Trevante and Alex. And what was the process for finding? I mean, uh, first of all, Alex, who's the, the youngest, how did you actually find him? He has such an expressive, quiet so, so quality. I like to describe it as like a, a chronology. Uh, Alex Hibbert, the, who plays Little as a kid, was the last actor that we cast. Um, we started with Ashton Sanders, who plays Chiron in the second story. He was actually the first person who read for any part uh, in the film. He had done a film called The Retrieval, which was at South by Southwest, I believe, in 2011 or 2012. And then if you saw Straight Outta Compton, he's the kid who's on the bus, who's, who's doing all the gang signs, the, that the guys come on the bus to sort of like, uh, to beat up. Those were the only two things he had done. Um, and he came in to read for this, and me being a director, because he was the first guy, I was like, I can't be the first guy. And so he read, and I was like, all right, he's fine, but yeah, show me 100 other guys, you know? Uh, but he, he stuck around. We kept bringing him back over and over again. And I think through that process, uh, one, I got to know him a lot better, and he got to know the character a lot better. I think it's why his performance um, in the film is, I think, the rawest performance um, in the movie, but I think it's because he knew the character uh, the best, you know, because he had done it so much with me in the room. Uh, and then Trevante Rhodes came in uh, to audition for Kevin, actually, for Andre Holland's character. And I thought, there's no way this guy's Kevin. He's got too many muscles. He's just too, there's just no way. Uh, but out of respect for the process, I wanted to let him audition. And, you know, I wanted this film to be immersive for the audience. and wanted you guys to feel what the characters are feeling. And when Trevante walked in, I judged him immediately. I said, this guy is not my character because he's not capable of the level of vulnerability I think the character demands because he had all these muscles. I mean, he was even more yoked in real life than he is in the film. I had him lose weight. And, and he was auditioning, and as he was auditioning, I just saw this deep, deep vulnerability within him, this deep sensitivity, and I thought, okay, if the audience can do the same journey that I just did in the audition room, then we will have won. Then you will see, you will look in his eyes and see whatever little kid I find to play him in the first story who's gonna dance in a mirror. You will believe that that guy could have been that kid. Um, and once I had those two guys, I always wanted the, the, the young character to be from Miami, to be the voice like, of the city I grew up in. So I knew we would go back to Miami uh, to cast Alex Hibbert. And I felt like if I knew where the character ended up, I would know where we needed to start from. And so we had been going to Miami over the course of, I want to say, like 14, 16 months. And it wasn't until like 30 days before production that we finally found uh, Alex Hibbert. He just walked in, and he was like this 10-year-old dude who felt like a 70-year-old man. And I was like, that's my guy. 
Um, you, you, you mentioned, you said the word immersive. You want to immerse the, the, the audience and the characters, and that definitely, definitely comes across. Um, I feel like the movie has, there's a real aesthetic rigor to it, but it also, um, there's something kind of casual at the same time about it. When you were working on the script, I'm just wondering um, how much of that, uh, that, that kind of that visual rigorous aesthetic was part of the original plan, or do you find that in the shooting? Do you find it in the editing? Uh, I think, it, it, one, you make a movie three times. You know, you write it, you make it, you direct it, you make it, and then in post, you make it again. Um, and I, I try to not be beholden to any process that came before. You know, once I'm in the edit, the script is out the window. Hell, once I'm on set, the actors can tell you the script is out the window. I said to a producer, she's like, what, what are you doing? Why is the camera pointed that way? I was like, oh, I'm not making the script. I'm making what's in front of me, you know? I mean, the script is a blueprint. We're actually working to the script. We got to know what we're doing that day, but I'm absolutely making what's in front of me. Um, and so some of those things are written um, into the piece. You know, the script is like 93 pages. The original script we had, the shooting script is like 98. The finished film was 110 minutes. So we always knew there would be more space that we would find in the edit uh, than we would have on the page. Um, but once we're on set, I try to let the actors and myself and the cinematographer figure out what is the most appropriate, accurate, authentic depiction of the scene I have in my head that we can get in flesh and blood on the day. Because with the budget that we're working on and the pace that we're working at, I can't afford to have what's in my head that nobody can see, nobody can feel, nobody can touch. I don't want that to dictate what the people who are actually in the room in front of the camera, what they're performing. And so I never direct the first take. You know, I always just want to watch and see what the actors bring and then see how far is that from what I have in my head and try to calculate what the distance is to get the best version of those two things, you know, to collaborate and end up at a place that I think is truthful uh, to my vision. Um, it's, it's a movie that obviously touches on so many things, uh, but it's, it, I feel like there aren't a lot of American movies that deal with masculinity the way this film does. And in an interview I read with you, you used the There term. is a French one called Beau Travail that's oh. playing at Lincoln Center this week. And that is a great movie. Listen to him. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, but this is, a, this is a very, I think, a very specific American, uh, you called it toxic masculinity in an interview that I read. Um, it, when working on this film, or working on the script and then working on the film, was this kind of like a guiding principle? I mean, it's obviously one of the themes of the film, but it, I really haven't felt that theme come through American, an American film that I had maybe ever seen. Yeah, it wasn't a guiding principle, but I was definitely uh, aware of it, you know? I knew, I, I knew it was going to be something that, that when people saw the film, that they, uh, that they sort of hinged on. You know, I, I think the, I want to say the representation, but that's the wrong word. I think the impression of, of what a black man is, of what a black male um, is in America, um, is very tainted. I only say tainted because I think the presentation of black men um, has often not been controlled by black men. You know, the news media we see is not controlled by black men. You know, the, you know, the television, all this other shit that we get. We're getting all these presentations of who black men are that are not deriving from black men. Um, and so I knew immediately when these, when these characters walk on screen, when the, when the movie opens and you see Mahershala Ali and that drug deal is happening, you automatically assume what the film is because of all these presentations you've seen of black men before you walk into my cinema. Um, and so I knew, not that we were going to do things to subvert that stereotype, but that stereotype was going to walk in with the audience into the cinema. Um, and so being aware of that, there's, there's no way I couldn't 
be aware of the currency of what we were doing. Um, and so I tried to do things uh, to lean in to the responsibility um, of presenting these people in their full humanity. And I think the idea of masculinity was inherent in that. For example, we talked about the casting. You know, one of the very first decisions I made was that three different actors would play this character. And the, th the movie is inherently intersectional. I mean, one of those sections is about masculinity and how the world projects these ideas of masculinity onto all men, but in particular, onto black men. You know, a black man walks a certain way. He speaks a certain way. He looks at another black man a certain way. He does not look at another black man a certain way. Um, and I knew the audience is going to bring all these expectations into the cinema when they see these characters because they see them on screens all the time, but they don't see them as I believe they truly are. Uh, so all this time passes between each chapter. So when you meet the character in the second story, the time that's passed has radically shaped who this character now is. When you meet Travante Rhodes in the third story, there's no doubt if you haven't seen this film before or haven't seen a poster, you go, who the hell is that? You know, and, and why should I empathize with him? But he's the same damn person who was dancing in that mirror 10 minutes into the film. And so when you understand that you know, all these images carry all this weight, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a heavy load to bear. But uh, I'll give the actors credit. They all understood that, and they all shared it. Um, and I'm just so glad that you know, so many critics, and, and I think people on Twitter, for sure, I mean Twitter, good Lord, um, <laughs> have written so many things about what those images mean to them. Because they've seen those images before, but not in this context. I think context is crucial to Moonlight, I think, having the success that it's had. Yeah, I'm cin cinema's been called an empathy machine, and, but it has to be used by the right, the right people. <laughs> so, I'll take that. Um, I want to make sure that there's uh, some time for some questions from the audience. So if anybody has a question, you can raise your hand. Uh, yes, right there. Yeah. I'm sorry. The woman. No, I, w I was pointing at the woman behind you, but then you can go after that. Yeah, you. Why does why does Juan die off screen? Uh, so uh, the movie again is meant to be an immersive experience uh, for the audience. You know, with all the, with everything in this film, we tried to have it arise from the consciousness of the character. Um, you know, the movie looks a certain way, the movie sounds a certain way, because Sharon feels a certain way. I wanted the audience to feel what he's feeling. We literally put you in the body of Sharon at certain moments because I want you guys to not be able to escape to feel what he feels. And I think in the, the neighborhood that I grew up in and Terrell grew up in, there are men like Juan. You know, the, Juan, the character, is based on a real man uh, in Terrell's life. And that man was snatched out of his life at a moment's notice. He just came home one day, and Juan was gone. If like the character Chiron comes home one day, and Juan is gone. No explanation. He just got got. He's a drug dealer. Short shelf life. I wanted you guys to be in the audience and at some point wonder, where the hell did Mahershala Ali go? He was so good. He was so charismatic. But you know what? Mahershala got got. He's gone. And I wanted you to sit with that and be dislocated, be disoriented. And then eventually, because life, the movie's still going, life is still going, you got to just get on with it. And that was the whole reason. And, and I'll give, again, A24 and Plan B credit because Mahershala's a phenomenal actor. We all knew he would be great. You can't have a phenomenal actor and then just pull him out and I tell the audience. But I said, bruh, this is what we're doing. I explained, just like I just answered your question. They were like, all right, cool. I guess you can do that. Um, but I always get that question, and I apologize because I know uh, there's a version of this film where Juan is in his life every day, and both those men, Sharon and Juan, are better because of that relationship. But it wasn't true to the reality 
of what a man like Juan does as an occupation. So he got got. And, and uh, he won the Best Supporting Actor Award from the New York Film Critics Circle this week. He, he did. He, he has won a lot of damn awards. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. Well deserved. He's amazing. And then, yes, right there. Thanks, man. I, well, oh. did, did, did everyone, did anyone not hear the question? Uh, sorry. So, the, uh, sorry. I just want to make sure everyone heard it. The question um, was that Medicine for Melancholy, his first film was 2008, and um, they hadn't made a film in between and uh, that they have very different aesthetic styles and that it seems like um, this film is such a, a, a step up in terms of uh, the technical virtuosity. And so I guess the question is, how'd you get <laughs> well, so good? Well, it's funny. That's the first that question is like, yeah, exactly. Why are you so bad in medicine? Why are you so good in Moonlight? <laughs> no, nah, I'm just messing with you, man. See, I got a microphone. You don't, so I can mess with you. No, <laughs> no, nah, nah, you know what? I mean, again, it's the same cinematographer, the same DP. You know, in between these two films, uh, I had a deal at Focus Features. You know, Cary Fukunaga made this short film called Sin Nombre. Then he made a feature called Sin Nombre. Uh, Dee Rees made Pariah. She got this deal at Focus Features. I made Medicine. I got a deal at Focus Features. Uh, James Seamus and John Lyons were really good about trying to pluck these young filmmakers and give them a larger platform. The industry changed. You know, 2008 happened. There wasn't enough money to go around. Uh, but James did say something, say something to me that I think is evident in that question, which is the budget informs the aesthetic. Same filmmakers. We had $15,000, 15 days, five people. We did the best job we could uh, with medicine. I actually think that's a very beautiful film. I think James did a great job shooting it. It is. Uh, but, but we had more tools uh, on this one, and it was a different world. And, and I will say uh, my approach to Miami ran counter to my approach to filming San Francisco. San Francisco is a gorgeous city that made me feel very ugly. Miami is a very beautiful, beautiful city, and this film is dealing with very ugly things. The images run counter uh, to sort of like the assumptions of how that should be depicted. And I think the two films, in a certain way, if I had a different budget, I could switch the budgets, I still think the films would end up looking uh, the way they do. Uh, but I'm gonna take that as a compliment, bruh. And the other thing, too, uh, you know, I've been getting so much credit for making this film, um, and I appreciate it, but in between Medicine uh, and Moonlight, my editor won the very first Spirit Award for editing for Short Term 12. He's done the full last season of Girls. He's cut, like, at least eight features. James has shot, like, six different features. Everybody got better. So when I came back to work, my collaborators were like, hey, I'm going to lift you up because I got more skills. And so I give them all the credit for the disparity you see in the quality of those two films. I'm just messing with you, man, because I got a mic. <laughs> Medicine for Melancholy is terrific, and everyone should stay and watch it. Um, and I have a lot of things to say about it, but I'm not going to waste everybody's time. Right here in the front. Uh, the, first, the first question is about uh, your creative process and how you prep to shoot something. The second question steals my final question of the night, but that's fine, I'll forgive you, <laughs> which is um, about the other films in this series um, and because the, they're films that inspired you when you were making Moonlight and how those inspirations actually played out. Yeah, I think in, in a very concrete way, I'll talk about the process. Um, so I shot list the whole, I don't storyboard because we work in real locations and I think storyboards are kind of useless because at the budget that we're working at, we don't usually have those locations until a week before, two weeks before. And a storyboard artist needs much more prep than that. Um, but I shot list the whole film by myself without the DP, the first pass. Uh, and then I bring James in and we go over the shot list front to back again together. Then when we're on set, the shot list is great, but at that point I'm like, all right, that's cool, but 
here's what's in front of us. Um, and so some of that stuff ends up being uh, very concrete. There are sequences in this film, for example, uh, the last like five minutes of, chap of chapter two, that is like, that has been in my head for about a year. For like a year before we got to production, that was in my head, like shot for shot for shot. That is how it was. And then there are other things, like um, in chapter two, when uh, Naomi, when Sharon comes home from Teresa's, he's had the dream about Kevin. He's in the courtyard, she says, hey, but I'm your mama, ain't I? I was on set with them, and it just wasn't going far enough. As an immersive experience, I felt the audience wasn't feeling what I felt as a person living that moment with my own mother. But I know the tools of filmmaking. So I'm like, how can I put you guys in his head to feel it more viscerally to feel it, you know, in the soles of your feet. And I go, oh shit, well, Naomi, can you do this looking right into the camera? And I say to James, can you put the 50 on and shoot it at 48 frames per second? You know, I went to film school. If you force it to 24, the 90 degree shutter is gonna look cool. All right, cool, so we got that. And Naomi's like, yes, I can do it looking right into the camera. And so we roll camera, and the cinematographer is my homeboy. I've known him 15 years. I only want this one line, but I'm your mama, ain't I? She does the line, it looks great. And then she turns and walks the front door. And James walks with her. And I'm watching this on monitor. And as I'm watching it, now I'm in his head. You guys, the audience, are in his head. And I know at a certain point, we're going to slip that audio. Things like that, I can't plan for. Uh, the same thing with the pink hallway. When, uh, when Naomi and, uh, comes from the argument with Mahershala, and she and the kid and Little are standing in this hallway. You know, James and I found that location because it reminded me of the last apartment I remember living in with my mother before she got strung out. And we just put this light at the end of the hallway for no damn reason. And then Naomi showed up and I was like, you know what? I want you to stand there and look at him and he's gonna stand there and look at you. And you know, we're just gonna roll it. And again, we're gonna do it at 48 and, and here's what it is. And then I thought, would you yell at him? And she said, yeah, I think I would yell at him now as the character. And again, that's in the movie. It's not in the script. It's not in the shot list. So there's certain things like that. And you know, speaking of the influences, all these movies that we're showing this week, you know, I don't believe your influence becomes uh, your aesthetic. Um, and yet I do think you know we're watching all these images all the damn time. Everybody has a phone. There's so many images on it. You know, you're walking down the street, especially in this city. Holy shit! I got all these billboards that are lit up. Just information is coming at you all the time. That stuff gets inside you. So we programmed this week. We're showing Votrevi, which I keep talking about. I only say that because I haven't seen it in about five years. Um, but when, when Dennis hit me up about making the series, I was like, yeah, I think Votrevi has got to be in there. So I watched it. And there's this actor in this film, uh, Michel Soubois. And the first time you see him, I had forgotten this. He's smoking a cigarette, looking right into the camera. Now, we're on set, and we've wrapped the whole diner scene. And the, the truck is over there. Everybody's you know, working, putting things away. And I go to Andre. He was standing against his wall. He looked like James Baldwin. I was like, bruh, you still got that cigarette? He's like, yeah, I got it. I was like, you know, I want you to light that cigarette. I want you to look right in the camera. And here's my trick. James, 48 frames. I want you to walk into him. And we did it. It's not in the script, not in the shot list. That, to me, is, again, this thing I saw six years ago, eight years ago. And now I'm in this moment. And it's like, it just comes back to you. But when it comes back to you, you repurpose it, you know? This is Godard quote, it's not where you take things from, it's where you take them to. Um, and so I think all that stuff just adds to this vat of me trying to express what it was like to grow up in Miami, Florida. So yeah, I guess that's what it is. It just gets inside you, that's really interesting. Gets inside you, bro.
yes, I'm gonna go further back to make sure we get everyone. Oh, I'm gonna be pointing at two people at the same time, I know that. <laughs> right here, in the, yes, yes, you, yep. So the, yeah, so the question is about the direction of actors mm -hmm. and how did you go about eliciting these micro-expressions, these tiny emotions from these actors? Yeah, I, I like the phrase micro-expressions, by the way. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think it's, it's been pretty well noted that the actors didn't rehearse together or meet each other um, uh, at any point during filming, and I didn't let them watch each other's footage uh, also. Um, so part of that uh, is magic, for sure, um, but then I think another part of it is the work of our casting director, uh, Yessi Ramirez. Um, the one thing I did do was I gave all the actors the full script. You know, I wasn't so method that they could only have their own their own chapter, but you know there was a freedom inherent in the fact that I do think the characters change so much that he's become a different person at each stage uh, of the film. Uh, and yet I tried to write the script in a certain way that it would give these guys some direction of how they could externalize these internal. Uh, emotions. Uh, for example, after the phone call, uh, when Kevin calls Black and Travante is sitting on the edge of the bed, uh, there's this line in the script that is unfilmable, you know, for all the film school filmmakers in here. It says, you know, Black hangs up the phone, sits on the bed, uh, despondent. And then it says, uh, looks, at, look at his, looks at his cell phone, five minutes, 26 seconds, dot, 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 a lifetime. Unfilmable. Purple prose. My screenwriting instructor would have been like, get that shit out of my screenplay. <laughs> Um, but you give it to an actor, and in the movie, Travante he hangs up the phone, he sits down, he looks, he puts it on his hand like this here, and then he lays back, he looks at it, and he drops it on his chest. And so all the actors had these little nuggets uh, in the action description that they knew they could perform um, out loud. And I guess I'm the control in a certain way. Myself and James are the control. We frame them all uh, in, in very similar ways. You know, there's, there's a shot in each chapter where somebody, we're on their back, two, three, five frame, we're like 10 feet away from them, they're walking away from us, we're keeping the distance. Um, but then I was trying to direct them uh, to do these things, to, as you said, express these micro-expressions. And the one that I've forgotten about that somebody reminded me of earlier today is, in the first chapter, Alex Hibbert was just such a gifted performer. And uh, the first time Juan meets him, he comes to the window, he says, hey, what's up, little man? And then when Juan drops him off after the beach scene, he walks in, mom's in the house doing bad things, and he meets this other black dude. And the first thing he says is, hey, what's up, little man? Same damn line. And so I said to Alex, because, and again, you have, I, it was 25 days, I had to really trust these actors. And this is like the youngest actor who's never acted before. I said, hey, Alex, you know, he just said the same thing to you, right? He goes, oh, yeah. I go, you should do something. And instead of telling him what to do, he's like, oh, all right, all right, Barry, I got it, I got it. And if you watch the film, it's super subtle, but if you watch it again, for you people who've seen it twice, maybe you'll see it three times, I don't know. I would love that. But dude says, what's up, little man? And you see a micro-expression, this little twitch in his eye. He does like this, and he, and he leans back. And it's like each one of these actors, they were so gifted, they could express themselves without expressing uh, themselves. And we casted for it, and when I could find it organically, I would direct them towards it. But it's all magic, all magic. Uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up, although Barry will be here to introduce the next film, so there's still more of a chance hey, to see him. Thank you guys very much, and I have to say, wait, don't, 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 don't applaud yet, I have to say, there's all this stuff happening with this film, we're going to Golden Globes on Sunday, and as you said, I got an NBR award last night. Hey, this is a small-ass film, and so I always say when I have the chance to, if you like the movie, please tell a friend, tell a friend, 
tell a friend. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Son of Joseph is the buoyant new comedy from director Eugène Green, who teamed up with producers Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne to tell the story of an unhappy teenager in search of an adequate father figure. The film had its U.S. premiere at the New York Film Festival last October, and it begins its official theatrical run here at the Film Society this weekend. Green joined programmer Dan Sullivan for a Q&A after its screening at NYFF. Let's go to that now. So uh, I'd like to begin uh, uh, by asking about uh, Mathieu Amalric's uh, participation in the film. I think it's, it's, um, it's often a bit surprising when a very uh, recognizable, well-known actor appears in one of your films uh, for some reason. And uh, you know, it's a similar feeling that I had when Jeremy Renier turned up in Le Pont des Arts. Um, could, you, could you speak a bit about... Um, how uh, Amalric uh, became involved in the film and sort of incorporating an actor like him into your system? Well, the, 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 the actors are always professional actors in my films. And it's not the first time, actually, that I work with Mathieu because he was in a, um, a, a long short, I think you say, a moyen métrage uh, that I made in 2006, Les Signes, which was at Cannes. And in um, Le Pont des Arts, <coughs> there were quite a few actors, well-known actors. Natasha Régnier also is a well-known actress. And there was uh, Denis Podalides, Olivier Gourmet, and Jérémy Régnier. <coughs> it's, it's, uh, uh, it's the same thing. Uh, they, I, I, the, the actors with whom I work have to accept the, the language, the specific language that I use. But um, Matthew, he, he saw my first film, Toutes les Nuits, uh, when, when it came out in 2001, and he liked it very much, and he told me that he would like to work with me if there was a, a possibility. And so we had the two possibilities in Les Signes and now. So there's, there's, not, there's not any difference when I work with him or when I work with uh, actors like uh, Christelle Pro, Adrien Michaud, with whom I've worked uh, often. It's, uh, he has to he has to make a certain effort not to because he usually he moves a, a great deal and he has a, a certain a personal way of acting but he was uh, he was happy to do, do this and uh, I think he he expresses as, as much or even more perhaps uh, than when he he's in the films of uh, des Pleins or someone like that <laughs> and um, uh, two more names that are that will be quite familiar to New York uh, film festival audiences are of course Jean Pierre and Luc Dardenne who uh, co-produced the film, and uh, I think that that also might surprise some people considering how different their work uh, their their own films are than yours. Could you talk about that relationship? Well, first of all, it's not this, the first time that they co-produced one of my films. They they co-produced Le Monde Vivant in 2002-3 and actually they wanted to co-produce uh, Le Pont des Arts et La Sapienza but they didn't find the, the money in Belgium but um, it's not really that is people think that this cinema is social cinema because it takes place in uh, the, the characters are always people who um, 
live in precarious situations and in their uh, native town of Sirin in Belgium, which is a, an industrial uh, working class town. But uh, actually, um, they, they, by other means, they, they, they try to do the same thing that I do. That is, uh, by filming uh, the exterior of things uh, to, um, to capture the, uh, the hidden part, the, the interior. And also, there's, um, that's also, it's in, especially in France, it's not ever recognized, but there's a, a spiritual dimension in all of their films uh, with Christian references, actually. Um, they're, they're, um, for example, um, in the film, uh, La, um, I don't know how you translate in English, the, 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 the child with a... L'enfant? Uh, no, the child with the bicycle. Uh, oh, the kid with the bike. The, the kid with the bike. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, once I heard, I heard uh, Luke uh, making an analyze, talking about the film, and he said, for example, that for him, the first time that the the, the child uh, comes into contact with the young woman who is going to take care of him, he he's running out of an office, and he he falls into her arms, and for Luke, uh, it was like uh, his reference, his visual reference, was a form of Pietà. The, 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 the representation of the, the Virgin Mary holding uh, her dead son. And at, at the end of that film, um, that's also something which is not recognized very much in France, but there's a resurrection at the end of the film because the, the child who falls from a tree and who is obviously dead, uh, suddenly he, he gets up and he, he walks away. So uh, they, they actually, I, I like the cinema very much, and they like they like mine. It's, uh, and they told me they would be uh, very happy to co-produce other films if they can. And um, uh, some of what you were just saying uh, concerning uh, spirituality, Christian motifs, and uh, this this uh, sense of interiority uh, uh, inevitably reminds one of uh, of Bresson, who's um, <laughs> Of course, big. Uh, I think a big uh, uh, point of reference or inspiration for both you and 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 the Dardens, but very differently. Um, and I, but I think uh, a bit like Brisson, sometimes your films are are described as being formalist. And I was wondering what you what you think of that. Uh, yes, that's. But uh, actually, uh, art uh, the, um, art is art is form. Otherwise, it's not art. So. Uh, this, uh, we live in a world where everything is reduced to a sort of tele, um, tele-reality. Some sort of mediated reality. Yeah, uh, the, uh, and uh, I think it's this. It's going on now. Uh, during the, you, you, I think you were very courageous to come and see the screening, rather to <laughs> to, to watch the the debate between. But uh, everything becomes a sort of uh, reality show, and and uh, um, so so. Um, the, the question, uh, excuse me, the question was just about what, what you what you make of uh, people referring to your films uh, as formalist. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, that that's uh, also another word they use often is uh, manieré in French, mannered. Yeah. But uh, manierisme was um, uh, first of all the word manière in French or maniera um, in Italian. It's a word which means style. 
and the fact of having a style, so something original, uh, you, used to be considered to be a quality for artists. And uh, today, where everything is, um, so many films, especially French films, uh, seem to be made by a um, logiciel, um, say software. Uh, you, can almost, uh, you can almost invent a sort of software to make the two types of French films. Because uh, in France, we produce 200 films about a year, French films, without counting the French investment in, in foreign films. But out of the 200 films, uh, almost uh, at least two-thirds of them correspond of, of one of two models, either the social film taking place in, uh, in the suburbs, uh, mainly the suburbs of Paris, uh, or the, uh, but it's not a social film like the, the films of the Dardenne. It's a, it's a very formatted uh, kind of social film which tells you where, uh, what is good and what is evil. And then the other kind, and it's usually made by people who live in one of the posh districts of Paris. And, uh, and the other kind of French film is about the, the psychological problems of a bourgeois intellectual couple who live in a rich uh, district of Paris. And it's not made by someone who lives in the working class suburb. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but, uh, so, those films have no form, specific form, because they're always the same. But I think that all of the, 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 the cineasts whom I admire the most, they have a very specific language. You can, seeing just two or three shots of one of their films, you know it's their film. Like a, a great writer, you read one page and you, you can, uh, without looking at the, the signature, you know who wrote it. And so uh, I, I assume, um, I, I, I recognize, uh, I, I don't think that it's a fault to, to have a form. And, uh, but it's something which is, uh, which is, enfin, qui m'est reproché. Yes, it's, it's a sort of blame. Thank you. And I, I would like to ask you about literature in just a second, but I, um, before I do, I, want, I did want to mention that uh, if you enjoyed uh, Son of Joseph, it is opening around the corner at the Eleanor Buna Monroe Film Center on January 13th, so uh, please spread the word. Um, <laughs> and now, uh, I'd like to ask uh, about uh, sort of the place of literature in this film. Um, because in, in your previous films, um, there is an engagement with other art forms beyond cinema, for instance, architecture in La Sapienza, music in the Portuguese Nun, and so on. Um, uh, but here you're dealing with the contemporary world of literature uh, for the first time, I think. I was wondering. Uh, yes, probably. So. Yeah. So I was wondering. I was. I was curious what uh, what motivated that, and sort of how you were thinking about it as you. Well, Paul uh, Menor, um, uh, he had to he had to be something, and I wanted him to be uh, uh, something in in. Um, one of the a part of the French intellectual world, which has a, a great prestige in France, and to show that someone who participates in what is considered to be culturally prestigious is someone who is very uh, empty inside. Uh, and it happens that uh, I, I'm also uh, here. Probably, if you if you ever if you've ever seen another of my films, you may consider me to be a, um, a filmmaker. But I'm also a writer. I have about 15 books published, and so I do have a certain acquaintance with the publishing world in, in Paris. And uh, uh, I, I have I didn't invent anything in, in this. Film. 
it's something, it's, it's one of the particularities of French uh, civilization that um, uh, culture and literature in particular have a, a great prestige in France, but, uh, which, is, which is good. But uh, there's around it, there's a sort of um, a sort of world which is represented in the in the film, <clears throat> and which uh, which really has nothing to do with literature or with culture, and uh, literature becomes simply um, a power, a, 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 an area of power. And there are people who use literature as, as an area of power in the same way that people use uh, finance or politics to, to, to become powerful and rich. And we can take some questions from the audience. Yes, well, it's something I did very uh, deep re research, actually, on the Baroque period. Uh, there was a practical reason because before I, I started making films or having my books published, I did theater for more than 20 years. And it wasn't the only thing that I did in theater, but I had a specialty of Baroque theater. I tried to do for the, I tried to do for the theater what the musicians did for the music of the period. That is to come the closest possible to the way it was done when it was new theater. And, but there was something, actually, there was a, a personal reason which is much deeper. It's a bit complicated to explain, but I'll try, and we don't have too much time, I think, but I'll try to do it quickly. The Baroque period, for me, gives an answer to contemporary man to a question which has never been really resolved in, in our civilization. Because um, in the Middle Ages and the, and the Renaissance, uh, there was no contradiction between the exploration, the rational exploration of the world, what we call scientific investigation, and spiritual belief, because people believed that the world was a creation of God, and that God was visible in every element of his creation. Any element of the world was a, mac a microcosm in which you can find uh, on a small scale the, the same uh, thing as the macrocosm, the universe. But uh, beginning in the, the middle of the 16th century, uh, scientific uh, development had gone so far that it tended towards the construction of a purely rational model of the universe where things worked simply according to natural laws like a machine. And that seemed to evacuate the necessity of God but during all the Baroque period, from the end of the 16th until the beginning of the 18th century, uh, people lived an oxymoron in, in English. An oxymoron is a figure of rhetoric where you put together two elements which uh, reason considers to be contradictory and exclusive to express something which goes beyond reason. For example, uh, there's a famous uh, line of Corneille in the uh, Lucide. C'est obscure clarté, je dis avec la, I say it with a Baroque pronunciation. C'est obscure clarté qui tombe des étoiles. That obscure clarity, um, clarity which, which falls from the stars. An obscure clarity is an oxymoron because what is obscure 
seems to exclude clarity, uh, clarity and what is clear excludes uh, obscurity. But he put them together to, to describe the, la the, um, the light of the stars. And so Barak Man lived an oxymoron in permanence because he continued to develop the model, the modern model of, uh, of the universe, which seemed to make the universe function like a machine simply, but he believed that the, the highest reality was God, but God was no longer visible in the, in the world. It was the Deus Absconditus of Pascal, the, hid, the hidden God, and God only appeared in certain moments when the, the, uh, the natural laws of nature were suspended, and in the theater, man was able to reproduce the reality through a, something completely false, but he was able to make the, the hidden God appear in the theater. And so the theater became the model for all Baroque art, actually. So for me, it gives a, a, a possibility to live in the modern world with a spiritual life, but without being um, closed in, in, in a psychiatric hospital, because <laughs> someone who refuses completely the, the rationalistic uh, vision of the universe is always considered to be mad. Uh, and so that's the, 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 the main reason, the personal reason in any case for my interest in, in the Baroque uh, civilization. Do you, um, do you feel that, uh, that in your working methods and uh, sort of, for lack of a better way to put it, I'll describe it as your stylistic system that, you, um, that you're striving towards that kind of Baroque ideal that you were just describing? I don't, it's sometimes I see that, I, I, I read that my films are Baroque cinema. I don't know what that means because Baroque is a historical period and I, li I was born in the 20th century and now we're, I think we're in the 21st. So, uh, but um, I don't know. I, I, in any case, I don't uh, consciously strive to, to imitate anything from the Baroque. Uh, it's something which comes to me uh, directly. In, in, a, in a general way, I consider that uh, an artist, in any case myself, that I'm just a sort of um, artisan, actually, because uh, without something which comes from the exterior, I couldn't, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. And the the um, the basis for all my um, stories in, in the films or in the novels, uh, it's always something which comes from elsewhere. And then I develop it, but it always comes from from, from elsewhere. And the stylistic thing, it's a, a little bit the same thing. It seemed necessary for me, to me for what I wanted to do to to do it that way. I did it that way for my first film, Tutling Me, that it satisfied me. And so I don't, for the time being, in any case, and I I don't think I'd have very much time left. So it's probably up until the end. Uh, it satisfies me, and I don't see a necessity for changing. And we we can take a couple more questions from the audience. The, the time on the paintings, or in general? But I think generally the way that you uh, render like temporality. Uh, the temporality. Well, also because that's one of the problems. The uh, we live in a, in a, um, we live in a world where uh, the present doesn't exist. Uh, 
If you go out in the street, uh, you see people, uh, all the people in the street, it's, it's the same thing in Paris, uh, they're all uh, with their, their, um, their mobile phones. They either uh, they have music in their ears or else they're looking at the phone or talking to someone who isn't there. And so they have no contact with their present time. But the present is the most important time because the present contains all that has been and all that will be. The present is a continual and eternal uh, time which never stops. So, um, I, uh, cinema, uh, I, I try to, to give you, during the, the projection, a present which will enable you to see uh, more deeply into the reality of the present in the world, in, in your present also. And so that means you have to take your time uh, when you when you see, uh, I saw a part of the um, the presentation of the festival. I, I think it's a, it's it's well done. It's a good presentation. But there were extra there were um, extra excerpts of films, and you could never you didn't have the time to see what the image was. Then they, it's it's the the um, it's the idea of the clips that you. Uh, it's, you just have to make images pass, but uh, people are afraid of, uh, of stopping. Uh, pre people are afraid of, of looking into things. And so I think that at least for the two hours of, uh, that uh, a film takes, you can give yourself the, the, the um, uh, how do you say, you, you can take the, um, the, 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 you can treat yourself uh, to, to the, the, uh, the, the possibility of taking your time and looking at things. And so that's what uh, the when you the, I filmed the paintings. Um, there was a general view of each painting, and then uh, I wanted to to you be able to look at it as when you're in a museum, for example, you you have a general view of a painting, and then you start looking at details, and you start as understanding more and more about what the painting is, what it expresses, and so that's what. Since uh, Vincent and Joseph are looking at the painting, uh, I wanted you to be able to have the same experience as they do. And it's the same thing with the, any sort of frame that I do. Uh, I want to take the time to, to, to go into the, what is hidden behind the, the appearance of reality. Did you, um, did you have the, uh, I was curious whether you had the, the Caravaggio painting in mind uh, all along because uh, the sacrifice of Abraham, because it gestures in the direction of the film's uh, spiritual concerns and sort of the biblical points of reference in the film. Well, yes. When the, when I got the uh, when the idea came to me for the the basis of the film, which afterwards I developed, uh, the the essential element was the, uh, a boy who doesn't know who his father was and who is obsessed by that, and the idea of uh, the painting of Caravaggio, the the sacrifice of Abraham, and uh, and relation between the two. This person asked about the pattern of young men being taught by older men. In Green's films, well, it's it's in those two films that that, uh, that situation exists. I don't think it exists in my other films, but it, it corresponds to something which is very important in in all of my films and my my books. Also, I think it's the idea of transmission, which is uh, an an essential element of civilization. Civilization is the transmission from one generation to another, and one of the the tragedies of our contemporary world is that transmission has been interrupted 
and uh, there, there is uh, there's uh, very little transmission from one generation to another. And in my generation, there was a real interruption of transmission, so that the, the succeeding generations, if they want to find what is behind their culture, what is behind their history, they have to look for it themselves. Whereas that should be a normal part of um, of life, in fact. And uh, uh, as I said when I was presenting the La Sapienza, the transmission is always in both directions. And, uh, a, a, and an adult can tran uh, transmit uh, what he knows to someone who is young, to an adolescent. But the adolescent is closer to the reality, uh, to, the, um, to the most important reality, actually, spiritual reality, uh, by, simply by um, uh, intuition. And so he, he, he enables the adult to find again the state of what he was when he was an adolescent. And so uh, it, it's something which is uh, very benefic, bene, uh, beneficial in, in, both, uh, in both directions. And so uh, it, it, does, uh, it does come in that form in these last uh, two films. Uh, but in my earlier films, it's present, uh, the idea is present, but in other ways. I'm sure they're all wondering uh, uh, what, your, what the next film will be and when you'll come back and show it to them. Well, there's a, I made a documentary which hasn't been released yet about the Basques, uh, which I hope it will be seen. And I have two projects. I have lots of scene, uh, screenplays which are written, but you have to find the financing for them, which is the most difficult part. But I have two uh, projects where, where there's a producer who is trying to get the financing for them, and which I hope to to realize both of them in 2017. One of them is a short film, which I hope to shoot in Lisbon in Portuguese. It's a, a, about a, an anecdote of the life of the poet uh, Fernando Pessoa, which uh, I rediscovered, I had known it actually before, but I wrote a, a, sh a short book about Pessoa, and I rediscovered this anecdote. It's a very amusing anecdote. And uh, the, the second one is a feature film, uh, which is based on a Basque myth, and uh, I wrote the screenplay in French, but I would like it to be translated into Basque, and I would like to shoot it in, in Basque. So those would be the two next uh, projects if, if the producer finds the money. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I'm sure we all hope so. So uh, uh, thank you, Eugène. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>